Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, hi again, and welcome to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Great to have you with us right in the midst of the holiday season. And certainly everybody, uh, we hope and pray you stay safe and sound and your family and friends and people you love. And, and just be careful. Get through it safe. Okay? Get through it safe. And have some fun and enjoy the time. Because you're not promised tomorrow. Nobody is. Enjoy it. And enjoy them while you can. The producer of this show is Dave Armbruster. We always thank him for his outstanding work. We thank the Believe Network for believing in this show. We thank our sponsors, Kerry Burns over at TQL and our good friend John Burns over at Encore Technologies. Our guest today is directly involved in the sports world, but we're going to go a lot deeper than that today. Dr. Timothy Kremchek is regarded, was just recently named, one of the top 10 doctors in all of Major League Baseball. He's considered to be one of the top two or three surgeons on the planet. If a pitcher, whether that be a high school pitcher, whether that be a college pitcher, a minor league pitcher, but especially the big names in Major League Baseball, if they have to have Tommy John surgery, there are about two or three guys in the country that you're going to think about going to. And Tim Kremchek is one of them. He's a medical director of the Cincinnati Reds. He also is right on the forefront of kids and how much they're pitching, how many pitches they're throwing, how frequently should they be getting rest. And there are a lot of you out there right now uh, that listen to this show that maybe have kids that are pitching. And, you know, you got a coach that, you know, runs them out there if they're the best pitcher, runs them out there on a, on a Monday if you're playing summer ball and come back on a Thursday out of the bullpen. Then you start a game on Sunday or Monday. And before you know it, you're having to go see Tim Kremchak. Not good. So he is sought after by so many in the medical community and especially in Major League Baseball about some of his views, which he will share with us today. Oh, and one final note, his nickname is Doc Hollywood, and there's a reason for that. We'll get into that. Dr. Timothy Kremchek is next, and you're dialed in with Tom Brenneman. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services, including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. 
Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist. Call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Dr. Timothy Kremchek is one of the most well-known and respected surgeons in the United States of America. I mean, he's operated on some big-time names. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., Barry Larkin, many, many, many hundreds of others over the last 35 years. But most of his work is done on people just like you and me. In fact, he's done a knee surgery for me. He's led a hip surgery for my daughter, uh, taking care of our son. Um, He started and owns Beacon Orthopedics in greater Cincinnati, his hometown. His father, Edward, was a well-known doctor in the greater Cincinnati area for decades. He doesn't mind being called Doc Hollywood. That's a nickname my dad, Marty Brenneman, gave him shortly after becoming the Reds Director of Medicine. He was 34 years old when he got that job. And by the way, on the Doc Hollywood thing, we'll get to this later, but just a little hint, the Rolling Stones, Kiss, among others. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. He has recently been named as one of the top 10 doctors in Major League Baseball. But when it comes to doing and performing the Tommy John surgery, many feel like he's the best in the world and certainly one of the top two or three in the world. And when pitchers have to undergo Tommy John surgery, one of the first two or three names as to who's going to do it is Tim Kremchek. He's a legend in his field. He worked alongside for a year of fellowship under famed surgeon Dr. James Andrews, who helped his rise in this field. His generosity in the greater Cincinnati community, helping young athletes, is unrivaled by any doctor I've ever met anywhere. And you're talking about the health of of young girls, young boys, works football games, high school games on Friday nights in the fall, soccer games, basketball games for years. He recently donated a brand new baseball field to famed Cincinnati Moeller High School, where both he and his father were team doctors or are team doctors going all the way back to the 1960s. He has also been on a crusade for saving the arms of young pitchers, and his views are sought after by medical experts and baseball experts all over the country. We welcome Dr. Timothy Kremchek. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas, young man. How you doing? Tommy, Merry Christmas to you and uh, happy holidays to you and your family. It's, uh, it's great to be on. Absolutely. Hey, listen, you're growing up and your dad's a doctor. You're in Massachusetts. You start going to baseball games at a very young age. Your dad takes you. You move to Cincinnati. So right from the get-go, you're, you're, you're a baseball fan. You're a sports fan. Your dad, Edward, is this pioneer in sports medicine. He's working over at Moeller High School. Did you know as a very young man that you wanted to be a doctor? Not a clue. Not, not, I, I barely knew what my father did back then. Uh, I know he worked hard. I knew every Friday night he was leaving around uh, 5, 30, 6 o'clock uh, with, with one of his associates, Hank Sanciola. I had no idea. I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player. I was a Boston Red Sox fan and was kicking and screaming to Cincinnati until the first day we moved here. My father took me to the Reds against the Cardinals, Bob Gibson against Jim Maloney. Wow. 805 Crosley Field, and I became a Reds fan after that forever. Of course, a Red Sox fan in the American League, but no, I wanted to be a baseball player <laughs> I think since I went started college. Well, you, you went to Wittenberg and you actually were playing baseball at college there, and then all of a sudden you make the decision okay, you know, maybe I'm not going to be able to pro player, right? And, and, and I've read an article that when you got to Wittenberg and what a phenomenal school it is, that, that you pretty much said to them, hey look, you know is, is there something we can create here to getting into medicine? Is that accurate? 
That is right. I, I, I went to play. I was blind. I went up to play baseball. I, I played as uh, four years up there. Uh, I, I played my freshman year behind a, a well-known Cincinnati basketball player, uh, J- George Jackson. Yep. And uh, who, who nicknamed me Big Boog, left-handed <laughs> uh, first baseman, Big Boog Powell. He called me, and that kind of stuck for a while. But I, I figured out pretty quick that I wasn't fast enough, couldn't throw well enough. I just wasn't good enough to take it to the next level. And I'm looking up there trying to say, what am I going to do? And I'll tell you what I did is I came back over Christmas break and I worked with my father and we had a six week break. We got all the trimesters back then. I didn't know what he did. He said, come work with me. And I did. And I saw he loved what he did. I saw what he did was amazing. Never really picked that up over all the years. Mm-hmm. I was a doctor. And I knew all that stuff. But what he did and how he did it, I got to scrub in the operating room and I turned my head and at that point, went back to Wittenberg and say, this is what I want to do. And I'll tell you what, that's why I have so much respect for that university. They grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. I didn't do well my first year because I was very um, not focused at all and uh, and said, you can do this. And uh, they helped. They helped me, they helped guide me through, and uh, I'll never forget that. And I still go up to Wittenberg and take care of the uh, athletes and have uh, contributed quite a bit back to a school that's done an awful lot for me. You know, back when your dad was at Moeller High School, um, you know, and, and for those who are listening that are in greater Cincinnati, most that are listening are outside of greater Cincinnati, Moeller High School, I mean, you could go right down the list. You walk into the lobby of the place, and it's got to be the only high school in the country where you walk in the lobby of the school, and there's a banner of Ken Griffey Jr. American League Most Valuable Player, a banner of Barry Larkin, National League Most Valuable Player, and the list of players that come through there on and on. But the guy that really made them famous across the country was a guy your dad was working with back in the 1960s, Jerry Faust. What do you remember most about him? Do you remember anything about him? Oh, I remember a lot about him. Jerry used to come to the house. He had that gruff voice. He was always slapping you on the back. <laughs> I'll never forget. I mean, Saturday mornings at my house, the phone would ring about seven o'clock in the fall. And we, after a while, I figured out who it was. I'd ask my mom, who was on the phone? She said, that's Coach Faust. He wants to bring some guys over to the house later for Dad to take a look at. Well, nobody did that back then. I mean, these kids would come to the house. And, and finally, uh, when I became a freshman in high school, uh, Jerry came to the house, and, and this is pre-planned with my father, and took me up to Moeller High School himself and said, I want you to come out for the football team. And I'm standing there, and I'm watching these guys. I'm looking at Jim Brown, Tim Cagle. I mean, I'm looking at Bob Crable. And I said, I don't fit on this football field. <laughs> <laughs> I said, this isn't going to work. So I ended up going to Indian Hill, but still becoming a huge Moeller fan through my father. And you know, my father used to come to my games at Indian Hill. And he did, an, again, you talk about pioneers and somebody that I admire more than anybody in the whole world that is guided uh, just, just by what he's done and who he was and watched him do this. And he took Moeller High School, and he did most all of that for free. A lot of these kids and, and just worked extra hours, Saturday morning clinics, things that you know people do now for for pay or for you know income, whatever it might be. He did it because of the love, and and that's what really turned me on. He really, really loved Bowler High School, and and vice versa. They 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 gave that back to him, and that's one of the reasons I'm so supportive of that school. You know, you you go to medical school, University of Cincinnati. You start um, Beacon Orthopedics. Now, now when you're starting your own company like that um what was your goal when you said okay let's start this thing what was the goal 
Well, my first goal when I was in medical school at UC, I used to go to the Reds games all the time. Uh, my father's office had season tickets, and rarely people used them. And I remember going with my wife, and she was working at uh, Procter and Gamble, and I was in medical school and sat with this guy named Glenn Prosser, who ultimately became our CEO years later. And I looked at him and I said, "You know what? I'm going to be the doctor for the Reds one day." And he. Wow. Uh, he laughed at me. He thought I was a nut. Well, I knew the way down the back, back just through a friend of mine, J.B. Buzzy, whose father owned part of the team, mm-hmm. uh, the back alleys of Riverfront Stadium. So we used to watch the players come out. And I see this is the Big Red Machine. And I had autographed baseballs by the Big Red Machine. I was all into this. I mean, this is something I really wanted to do. Had no idea what the team doctor level meant, but knew that I wanted to be involved somehow, some way with the Cincinnati Red baseball um See, as a matter of fact, I remember one day the guys coming out signing balls, and these kids were standing there. I had like sweatpants on, and I was obviously a lot younger, 23, 24 years old. And the kid asked me if I signed a few balls, and I saw their parents coming. My friend and I ran across <laughs> the Cincinnati. Uh, you know, I, but, but, but it was back then I said, this is what I, I want to do. And my eye in medical school at this point was to be just like my father, but I wanted to take one day, wanted to take care of the Cincinnati Reds. I don't know if it could happen, but I really wanted to set my goals on it. And that's how I kind of paved out my early future of uh, my training in Boston uh, and uh, going down to, with Jim Andrews mm-hmm. for a year. When, when, when you talk about Jim Andrews, uh, you know, a lot of people, very well-known guy, uh, was worked with uh, Frank Job, you know, the pioneer of the Tommy John surgery. The year you spent with Andrews, um, obviously you learned a lot and all that kind of thing, but, but if there's one thing that you carried with you, whether it be uh, from a technical standpoint, whether it be from a personal standpoint, what did that year mean to you ultimately in your career that, that, that's still going strong today? You know, I, I tell you, it, it's a, that's a great question. And I'll tell you what, I learned the art of medicine, and, and it's in the people business. I watched, I, I, I trained in Boston, the old hallowed halls of Mass General Hospital, New England Medical Center, New England Baptist, White Coat, blah, blah, blah. And that was great. I still used to ride my bike and watch the Red Sox come into Fenway Park. It was awesome. And and I saw the day Bucky Dent got fired and the whole story behind it. It's crazy. But I went to Birmingham because I wanted to be a baseball doctor. And, and I got Jim Andrews' name because back then they said, there's this guy that operated on Roger Clemens. His name was Jim Andrews. And I looked him up and I, I studied him. I looked. He, he had bought a baseball team down in Houston, uh, Columbus, Georgia just so we could study baseball players. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I got in uh, there, and, and the guys that did in Boston weren't happy. They were all doing pediatric scoliosis fellowships, hand fellowships, and the director looked at me and said, put a plastic bag over your head for seven minutes, I'll turn you into a sports doctor. They didn't believe sports <laughs> medicine in Boston. But I went down to Birmingham, and it was like, it was like walking to the Las Vegas Strip. Boom, the lights were on. It was, it was all about the show. It was about an image. It was about a brand. It was about t- having athletes come in and realize they have the right spot. And having people around him that understood the importance of their sport, the importance of getting these guys back, how it 
important their injury was to them to help them to get back to do the things that they do and how he connected and communicated with the players, the parents, the coaches, athletic directors, owners, you name it. It was absolutely, I watched this and it was the art. I learned the art of medicine in Birmingham and I'll never forget it. I like to continue it to this day. And I tell Jimmy this when I talk to him all the time. I mean, he might've taught me ACLs, Tommy Johns, all this crazy stuff. But he taught me how to be a sports doctor, and I'll tell you what—that uh, that 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 to me was invaluable. Well, My father taught me how to be a good person and a doctor, and, and just a, a proper human being. Jim Andrews taught me how to be a sports doctor and how to succeed, and, and how to succeed in this very tough business. And I mean, here you were now, and, and you had, you had said even in college, you know, you want to be the, and, and it said you want to be the, the the director of medicine, team doctor for the Reds. At thirty-four, that happens. How did that happen? I, I came back to town and, and I jumped on and started taking care of the Cincinnati Cyclones hockey team. And the Cyclones back then were in the International Hockey League and they were selling out the gardens every time they played. It was crazy. I mean, this this was like unbelievable. Well, there's a guy on the team named Paul Wallace who fractured a bone in his foot that we took care of him, got him on the ice pretty quick. Well, Jim Bowden, took, who's the general manager of the Reds, took uh, – well, look at that and said, well, who, 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 this is the same injury that one of our pitchers, Jeff Brantley, had. And so they reached out and connected, and he reached out to me, and I told him what my dream was. And it was December, ni- excuse me, November 1996. He said, let's meet. I want to talk to you. And so I had a two-hour meeting with Jim Bowden in November of 1996. And he looked at me and he said, uh, he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to go to every game. I'm going to connect with the players, go to spring training. And he said, no, you won't. I said, yes, I will. And he goes, I'll give you one year. You show me you can do that. All right, I did. <laughs> Who was the first professional athlete you operated on? Oh, my goodness gracious. I can't even remember. Oh, come on. I can't. I Honestly, I mean, I, I'll tell you what. First professional athlete I operated on was probably a guy named Jeff Greenlaw. Who was a who was one of the stud hockey players that is ACL reconstruction for the Cincinnati Cyclones, and I operated on a lot of NHL players because these guys were going back and forth mm-hmm. in the NHL, and so I under, started learning and, and taking for what Jim, Jimmy taught me, Andrews, is you know how to deal with the GMs. I used to go to spring. I used to go down to camp with the Florida Panthers. Because I thought that was important. If I was going to learn how to do this, the Cyclones were affiliated with the Panthers. So I went down to Florida and went to spring uh, or fall camp in early September and spent a week or 10 days down there getting to know the players, everybody. Those were the first professional athletes. When I got to the Reds, it was funny. Uh, my first year, uh, I show up in spring training in Plant City. And if you've ever been to Plant City, don't. Uh, it was. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking the big lights and Plant City. Go down there, and um, I'm, I'm at the Ramada Inn, and Ricky Bonus is next door to me. And uh, I show up, and 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 there's Barry, the first guy that came up to me, the first. I'm walking into the training, into the locker room where they have the introductions, and it's it's not a great place. But I walked in, and the guy that walks up to me was the reigning MVP of the National League, Barry Larkin, in front of everybody standing there, put his hand out, and he said, I'm welcome. I'm very glad you're here. I hope that you would take this job. And everybody around him looked, and from that second on, wow. I was kind of like, Barry wanted me here. I'm here. 
and right. I'm going to help you. And so that was an icebreaker. But I was scared to death walking in there the first day. I didn't know what to expect. Now, Jim, Jim Bowden, I teach, I, I tease him now. He didn't make it easy on me. I mean, he, he was testing me and, and, and twisting me at every moment. He said, I want you to call, bring Joey Eichen in here and tell him we're cutting him. I said, what? <laughs> he, and Joey Eichen was a hothead. I said, what do you mean? I'm not going to cut him. He goes, yeah, you tell him he's not good enough. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! I might not last a year. I can't do that. <laughs> well, you 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 operate on Barry Larkin years later. You've operated Ken Griffey Jr. I'm sure is probably maybe the most well known guy you've operated on. Would that be safe to say? Yes, I think in in his day, yes. I mean, we all knew, we all remember. You know, Barry had a lot of problems, and Barry and I became very good friends. Um, you know, I was their age. I was I was I was young. I mean, I was you know, these guys <laughs> weren't much older than I was, and or younger than I was. And so Barry and a lot of these guys that uh, we took care of. I could, again, the, the the names are it's just so many of them. And I'll never forget the, the the when I was sitting in the operating room when it came over the news that Ken Griffey Jr. was coming to the Reds, and I'm thinking, Junior. I mean, I, we used to wait for the days that he'd come down to the ballpark and his dad would give him hitting batting practice. And, of course, I'd operated on his father, total D, shoulder, all that kind of crazy stuff. Knew the family very, very well. And so Junior comes in and with all the stuff. And Junior and I became – this is the best story ever. Junior and I became very good friends. And he loved my son, Teddy. My, my son, Teddy, just thought he was awesome. And But Junior, you know, he hung with the kids. I mean, he just related to them very well. Well, long story short, we're, I'm driving in my car. Junior had been out with a hamstring injury, hamstring injury for a week or so. It wasn't getting better. And he calls me on the phone. He goes, I want an MRI. And I said, Junior, we don't have MRI hamstrings. You know, you rehab those. But he's Ken Griffey Jr. We MRI'd him. Yep. yep. MRI and find out it's completely ripped off. And I said, oh, my gosh, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I've never taken care of this before. So I sent him to a guy down in North Carolina who's done him. Him and our trainer at the time, Greg Lynn, went down. The guy said, yes, you need to operate on that. The next day, I'm in my office knocking the door. It's Junior. He goes, he said, I need it fixed. I want you to do it. I said, I've never done one of these before. He goes, I trust you. You're a doctor. Read up on it. I want you to do it. Well, I did it. And, you know, after that, I mean, it was just. Well, he came day. back. He came back and won the, the comeback player of the year after that. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He did. He came back. And so the the point was is that it was that relationship, you know, it was just that bond that you had with these guys. And and I and I, I, I like to think that I still have that bond. It's changed the game's changed a little bit. But those guys, the Pete Harnishes of the world, the guys that were just they were they were funny, witty. And, you know, I was around their age. I wasn't uh, a whole lot older than they were. And it was an awful lot of fun. Late 90s, early 2000s. Early 2000s, team wasn't very good, but it was still a lot of fun. And hanging out with your old man up in a radio booth yep. calling Indians was awesome, too. <laughs> let me let, you know, th- this is a generic question, but but it's one that I've often wondered, and I'd bet the ranch at most people that have ever had to have surgery or somebody they know has to have surgery, they wonder about this question. All of you guys go to medical school men and women uh different medical schools and 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 you can always say okay there's there's better teachers maybe at this one than than another one and and better uh, you know when you do your internship and your residence there's better doctors maybe at boston than there are wherever fill in the blank but at the end of the day tim if you're being taught basically the same things what makes a good surgeon better than the next surgeon well i'll tell you what i i think it's 
and, and I, I know this for a fact, it's your love of what you do and how important your occupation is to you. And I'll tell you why I say this. You learn the basics, but I'm doing things now and I did things 10 years ago than I did when I was training. It's different. So you've got to learn. You've got to adapt. You want to continue to learn. You want to have that earnest and eager learning to be the top of your game. And this is something that I love to do. I love my job. I love getting up in the morning. I love going to work. I love going to the ballpark. I love going to high school football games, blah, blah, blah. But if you, if my, I have a responsibility to stay at the top of my game and the things that I do and recognize the things that I'm not very good at that I should send to others. And I think that's what makes a good surgeon, knowing your limitations, knowing what you're good at, and continuing education and continue to be the top of your game. The guys that hate their jobs, the guys that want to retire at the age of 55 or 60, they're counting the minutes. Those are the guys that aren't very good because they don't care. And I, hope, I like to think there's not a whole lot of those, but uh, I think the guys that have risen to the top are the guys that are driven and just love what they do. And I, I tell doctor, young doctors, our fellows all the time, if you don't love what you do, don't do it because you won't be good for yourself, your family, or anybody you're taking care of. So that's what made, it's, it's not the training just starts it off. But your vision and your love for what you want to do makes these guys what they are. And there's a lot of good ones out there. Well, I want to ask specifically about the shoulder versus the elbow. Um, you know, Tommy John, and you've done tens of thousands of these surgeries on, on young athletes and the very highest level of pitchers in Major League Baseball. Um, and, and those guys come back, uh, you know, 99% of the time. And in some cases, they're throwing harder and they're stronger than they were even before the surgery. Shoulders have not been as successful. It's not to say there haven't been guys that haven't come back as there are. But there's no question there's been more success with the elbow than the shoulder. Why is that? Well, first of all, the shoulder's got so many muscles and there's so much to it. For example, the shoulder, it has to be loose enough that you have full range of motion as a thrower, actually extensive range of motion of the thrower, but yet it has to be tight enough so it doesn't dislocate. And there's a very fine line with that, very fine line. Uh, label tears, rotator cuff tears, injuries to the shoulder, and, and that's what makes it so difficult. The, the, the problem was, was years ago is that we used to operate and fix all these things in pitchers, and now we're finding out that a lot of them we shouldn't have fixed. And I've been as guilty of that as anybody uh, in, in the world because we didn't know. Uh, the elbow, on the other hand, is a, it's not quite, you know, people, it's more like a hinge joint. And so once you stabilize that on the inside, make it solid, then it's everything else that you've got to coordinate and rehab. So the elbow, it's in, in Major League Baseball now, if you do a Tommy John, primary, first time Tommy John on somebody, the chances of them doing very well is over 90%. A shoulder, it depends on kind of what you're trying to do. We've learned that less is better. So you don't learn, you don't do quite as much inside of the shoulder. It's been a real learning process, and it still is with the shoulder. And you're 100% right. When agents call and teams call, they'd much rather have an elbow problem than a shoulder problem. Mm -hmm. And the shoulder takes so much rehab, so much time, so much effort. And sometimes players just kind of wear out at all levels, saying, I'm done. I don't know that I'm going to be able to do this. So, yeah, the, you, you hit it on the, the nail on the head. You, you mentioned shoulder problems. 
baseball players run. Although I did, it's very interesting. I read an article today. I just happened to read the what's that? The that out of Arizona, that Republic, Republic about this kid Tyler Black who we operated. I went to Wright State. I guess he's going to be a star up in a Toronto organization, and he had a shoulder injury and a shoulder repair. I just happened to read it today. I you know I forgot about him, but uh, there are shoulders that you can operate on. They do much better. Don't get me wrong, but it is definitely not as not as well. Let's just say it's not as uh, we can't predict as well as much as we can the elbow. All right, I, I want to ask you now about something that you, you. I mean, your advice and your opinions and your thoughts are sought after by baseball people, but medical people all over the country, and and that is um, kids and how much they're pitching. You've worked so much on this. You know, in a nutshell, Tim, I guess the question is, I've heard people say this, that that they believe, and of course there's no scientific proof to this, they believe that there are only so many pitches in every person's arm. And, you know, obviously you can abuse that or you can, you know, not strengthen it enough or use it enough, and then if you don't use it, you lose it. But, but with kids... If I'm the parent of a 10-year-old kid and he's pitching for his Little League baseball team and now he's playing Summer League baseball and he's like the number one or two guy and the coach wants to use him in the big games, maybe bring him back. Where are we? Where are you with this whole thing with kids and how much they should be pitching? Well, first of all, let me go back. You're, you're right. I'm not going to cure cancer, but this is one of my missions is to educate at least our community, and in some ways it makes me feel good that it's been a little more far-reaching than that. Number one, kids can throw, and and they learn to adapt their bodies, their shoulders, if they start throwing at a young age the proper way. And that's long toss, short toss. Bingo, number one. Number two, I, I think we had a peak then we made a great strides, and now we're hitting that peak again. And I, I want to call this really abuse. We are abusing our kids for the sake of winning. And that's what bothers me. And I'm going to throw this out at you, and I'm probably going to get hate mail for this one. But the Little League World Series and, and really drives me crazy, too, because I think they realized the harm they're putting these kids through, throwing curveballs at age 12. I mean, you watch the Little League World Series and every other pitch is right, breaking right, ball. The kids right. that throw the better breaking balls are going to win. Yet those kids are never going to be able to uh, proceed and, and move on to the big league level like everybody thinks they will. I think one of the biggest problems we have is is the, the challenge to win, the push, the peer pressure, the parental pressure, the sponsor pressure, the league pressure, the coach pressure for these kids to go out and put their best their best players are going to play pitcher and they're going to go to a different position and come back and pitch the next day. And the blind eye that we're turning to these kids, throwing too much fatigue causes uh, injury. We know this. These kids' bodies are not built enough uh, to, to throw that hard, that many innings, that long in consecutive years. And we also know that if you're a kid and you're in high school and you throw the ball over 90 miles an hour in high school, that you've got a 500% chance of having a shoulder or elbow significant injury. So we're abusing these kids and taking their talents at a young age, exploiting them, and, and, and kind of feeding them the fairy tale that it will uh, uh, pay off in the long haul. We know that if you do that at a young age, it will not pay off in the long haul. And there are just so many examples of this. I can go back to David Clyde with the Texas yep. Rangers who – 
pitched as an 18-year-old uh, in the big leagues who never panned out. With guys that you just, they fell off the earth, and so you forget about them. But you talk to most guys now, most guys that make it to the big league, and I ask all of our players during spring training, every one of them that I don't know, when they started throwing breaking balls and doing all this in summer leagues, and most of these guys say, I didn't start doing that to the end of college. So, yes, we have an abuse system. We have a system that right now, I mean, these summer leagues that play 100 games, and these kids are playing three games a day, traveling all over the place, and playing. you're wearing them out. You're wearing them out. And I try to educate, and some people listen and some people don't. I'll tell you what, the most receptive ears are the mothers. They're the most receptive. Well, of course, of course. The mothers hear it. And I'll tell you what, I've been in rooms that have been extremely uncomfortable with a coach, a father, and a mother. And I, I felt like Jerry Springer on divorce court <laughs> 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 refereeing these things. Crazy. But, yeah, I, I, I think we have a problem. And I, I think – let me just – Take this to another level. I think we're doing the same thing in youth soccer, especially girls youth soccer. Yep. It's absolutely abusive with the amount of ACL yep. see. But these young boys, I see them from all over the country. They're 14 years old. I have guys, kids come in at 11. Parents think that they're going to be the next Sandy Koufax, and they want to be throwing in October. Their elbow hurts. They say, take time off. And they say, well, our team's practicing. We need this. We need him. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? It's October. But they don't. They don't get it. Now, maybe, you know, they don't give them the answers they want. Maybe they go somewhere else. I'm sure somebody will uh, tell them what they want to hear. But we have a huge problem in our society right now. All right. Well, let me ask you this now. So let's leap forward to the major league guys. Okay. And, and when I was announcing the Arizona Diamondbacks games, right. and on the same starting rotation, you had Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling, two Hall of Fame guys. Johnson's in, Schilling will get in. Um, these guys took the ball every four or five days. They threw over 300 innings per year. They struck out over 300 batters every year, 250, 270, 280. And, and then, you know, Schilling in the World Series of 01 starts game one, game four, game seven. Johnson starts game two, game six, in relief in game seven. We can't find guys anymore, Tim, that, that throw 200 innings barely anymore. Are, are at the big league level or professional level, okay, now separating that from the kids, are we babying the professionals? I, I, the word babying, I don't like. But okay. I think, I, I think the, but the, but I think the term is we're not throwing enough. And, and I think one of the things that we need to learn is that you don't have to throw hard on the mound, but you have long tossing and throwing helps keep your arm in shape. For example, long tossing throws all the kinematics of your shoulder, but without placing the stresses on it. So the approach that we take, I think, is a little bit different. And we do. These players make so much money, and they're such an investment that we, you know, bend over backwards now to make sure that we're not overstressing them. You know, the old four-day rotation guys in the late 60s, the, the, the amazing Mets, all these guys back then. We had a four-day rotation. I remember Tony Cloninger with the Reds. And, you know, all of these guys, uh, all the way up into the early 70s, were in a four-man rotation. So they used to, the key was throwing enough. 
I think the key is is that these every the biggest problem is that everybody and there's anomalies out there. There's the Sandy Koufax and the John Darisdales and you know the Randy Johnsons where they're built, but everybody's throw, trying to throw too hard. It, it's all about speed. And the days of the the Maddox and, and the Glavins and the Brownings and the guys that throw the ball in the high 80s, 90, know where to throw it, know how to use their mechanics properly, use their body. Those are the guys that are going to succeed over the long haul. The flame throwers, the guys that throw 98 miles an hour to 100 miles an hour, they don't last very long. No. But everybody's body's different, but you're right. The, the game has changed. I just watched on YouTube the other day, Jim Maloney, Cubs, 10 inning no-hitter, threw 200 pitches. I mean, and Jim Maloney's arm now at the age of high 70s is shot. But the point is, is that these guys were just different animals back then. They just were different. And we treated them differently back then. I don't say we, because I wasn't, but we, they, they just let them go. Let them throw. Let them play their game. Now it's like, whoa, you threw five innings, you threw 85 pitches, you're done. Well, you're finished. And and, and so I, I think that goes to the point of, number one, they're not throwing enough. And number two, we're, 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 coddling is probably a better okay. idea. Right. And, we're, and we're saving our investment. These are our investments. These are big money guys. And you don't want to be the one that's accused of blowing them out. How many managers that jump up and, or, or pitching coaches and get crazy when, when, when writers or whoever many ask and said, are, are you abusing him? Is he pitching too much? Did you let him go too far? Did you throw too many pitches? They don't want to be the one it's accused of blowing out their pitchers. And that is a real problem in Major League Baseball right now, that perception. All right, I want to shift gears before I let you go because you earned the nickname Doc Hollywood. Uh, for those of us that have been to your various locations in and around all over greater Cincinnati, northern Kentucky, Indiana, so on and so forth, there are pictures on the walls in every room. And for a, a, a while in Cincinnati, when rock and roll bands or performing artists would come into Cincinnati, you know, inevitably, you're, you're traveling around the wear and tear of the tour, the whole nine yards, and you might need to see a doctor for this or see a doctor for that. Okay, so of all the guys, and I mean the names are everybody you can think of, you've had a chance to be around. Tell me the coolest rock and roll band group of guys that you've been around. Rolling Stones, no question about it. No doubt. Love it. Why? Rolling Stones. And you know, I've had the opportunity to have dinner with uh, uh, um I'm blanking on his name right now, the guitarist. I didn't know who Keith Richards. Please? Keith Richards. Oh, yeah. I had Keith Richards. I had Robert Plant. I had uh, 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 the story. Every picture on the wall, there's a story. And the Eric Clapton is who I'm thinking about. But through Garth Brooks to Reba McIntyre to Alan Jackson. Back then, when I was getting started, I went down to the Coliseum, and a fellow by the name of Tafaro was there. And I said, you know what? You need somebody to take care of all the acts that come in here. He looked at me like I was stupid, but there's a doctor that's going to do that? Well, that was me. I was young, aggressive. That's what I wanted to do. Everything that went through there, I went down. I met all these people. Any kind of thing that came to town that needed anybody, I took care of them. And I got a call one day in the OR. said, we need you to come down to Rolling Stones for the Voodoo Lounge Tour. And they were playing at Riverfront Stadium. And I'm thinking, okay, well, construction, and most of the time it was a construction worker or his thumb, whatever. I fly down there, bring them in. It's all decked out in black. I'm looking at who am I going to There's Mick Jagger sitting in the corner. And Mick Jagger and I started talking. I brought a friend of mine, Robert Smith, an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Great guy. And we're talking, take care of him. 
He says, you want to have dinner? We sit down at a table. Everything, they've got pinball machines for the kids and everything. <laughs> and the whole Rolling Stones band sits down, and we just start chatting and talking. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my. And all they wanted to know about was ACL reconstructions and soccer players, because they're all from Europe. That's all they did is they all do soccer. And all I wanted to know is tell me about you and David Bowie. I mean, right, 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 right. The tour and everything. And, and they were awesome. They were awesome. And they said, how can we pay you? And I said, how about an autograph? They don't sign autographs for anybody. And they signed the thing, and I took it. And that's just that was my payment to go down there because I figured it was a thrill. It was fun. All of these guys, all of these guys were awesome down there. You got to meet him. Robert Plant was – I brought one of my therapists with me. He drops his drawers for a vitamin B12 shot. She swoons. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, but, the, but they were mostly – they were just regular people. And, and, and I, the, the Eagles, you name it, and, and got to know them and say hello to them, contact You know, I, I wasn't anybody that wanted anything. I was there to help them. They recognized it, and that's what helped catapult me. And then your old man, every time I got on the TV or the radio with the Reds, which they wanted me to do in the late 90s, he walks by and he goes, you're Doc Hollywood. And every and Joe Nuxall used to beat that to death, <laughs> and so that's why everybody uh, referred to me. And you know, I take that as a you know what? A lot of people look at that and say you're mocking me. I look at it as no way. These are my friends saying this. That's thing. right. You know what I did, and I don't care, and I love it, and uh, I wear that as a badge of honor. It's, it, to me, it's been something that. That, and I tease Marty about it all the time. I said, you know, you gay? He goes, I, you damn right. I, I, you know how he is. I, 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 I mean, I'm standing there. And you're holding court every day. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> well, brother, I tell you, for those of us that have been uh, fortunate enough and blessed enough to be under your care in some form or fashion, uh, I, I just, I, you know, I think the world of you as a guy and the world of you uh, in your profession, and, and I've seen the difference you've made in, in, in not only athletes' lives, but more importantly, just the, the, the regular people of the world and, and the difference. And in, in, in when I've been in there for knee surgery or our daughter, I mentioned earlier, hip surgery and our son and getting injured in athletics and, and seeing other people down there who are going through their rehab after a surgery. I mean, you've made an incredible difference in, in, in people's lives, real difference in people's lives. So I, I know I'm speaking for many that have been under your care to say thank you and, and wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas and a, and a Happy New Year. Well, Tommy, that's the greatest compliment you'd, uh, you could ever give somebody like me, and uh, vice versa. I mean, you've been a friend for years, and they're good friends, great family, good friend. And you know what? We live in Cincinnati, and, and our community is important to us. And how people view us and how we stand, you, you the same way in our community as, 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 as somebody that people look to, it means an awful lot to me. And you know, as you get older, you kind of kind of want to leave that legacy. So uh, thank you for saying that. I, I love what I do. I love the people I deal with. I love, the, I just, I, I love it all. And, uh, you know, this, the, the Reds have been a cherry on the, uh, I, I, on the uh, top of the cake, but I'll tell you what, I, I, people say, how long are you going to keep doing it, man? I, 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 I've always wanted to be in the World Series. I've always wanted that, and I always thought it would happen, and it hasn't. And it's, it's. You wonder if it'll ever happen, but you know, Super Bowl, World Series, I guess NBA championship, Stanley Cup. Anybody gets one of those rings, I always hope they will. I, you have one from the Diamondbacks, don't you? Yep, yep, yep. 
Yeah, well, that that'll be the, that'll be the cherry on the top of this thing uh, if that ever happened. Well, my friend, I'll be rooting for you for it to happen and so many other great things. Merry Christmas to you and your family, and thanks for joining us this week. Hey, Tommy, Merry Christmas to you and yours, and uh, thanks for having me on. This was fun. Dr. Timothy Kremchek, kind enough to join us on Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Um, I, I can't I can't say enough about the guy. I and and look, yeah, I'm a friend of his, but I the job he does and that I've seen him do for so many people is just incredible. And his bedside manners, you can tell, his sense of humor, I mean, <laughs> funny dude. Um, again, we thank Dave Armbruster, our producer-engineer. Uh, we thank the Believe Network, and we thank all of you for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, we'll be back with you next week on Dialed It with Tom Brennan. Be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.